0: Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Anna Chies, head of the Lili Music
1: Library at Thompson University and our opening speaker for this year's Digital Dialogue Series of Myth. In her work, Anna explores the affordances and application of digital humanities tools and methods in historical music research, the application of standards for open access research and publishing, and the use of minimal computing. She also writes about topics in 19th century music with a focus on gender, women, and performance criticism and perception. She recently published a book entitled The Life and Music of Teresa Carreño, 1853 to 1917, A Guide to Research, and developed a digital project that documents Carreño's performance career with primary source materials and explores her performances in text through data analysis and visualisation tools. Today she will talk to us about her views on the Music Coding Initiative standard, its potential role in digital musicology, and how to make it more accessible through pedagogy. So without any further ado, I will talk MEI for All, or Lowering the Barrier barrier to Music According to Digital Pedagogy. Here's Anna Thank you.
2: Great, thanks everyone. Um, So, I'd like to start by just saying thank you to Susan Weisner and Trevor Munoz, um, Raphael, and the staff at MYTH for inviting me to speak here today. Um, at the Digital Dialogue Series. I'm really excited to be here and to explore and discuss some of my ideas about lowering the barriers to music encoding through pedagogy. I will say that um, the slides are available at the bottom there. You'll see a link to uh, Bitly. It does re- uh, require that you use the uppercase when you see uppercase or lowercase. So it's case sensitive. Um, all right. So as um, as Raf has already said, my uh, My talk today is uh, MEI for All or Lowering the Barrier to Music Encoding Through Digital Pedagogy. So, I'll start by having you just imagine that you are a graduate student enrolled in a music research seminar class. And you, in one of the sessions, will be exploring sketches and scholarly editions. And the librarian that has been asked to come into this class is showing the, the classroom a Beethoven sketch in which you can interact with the content on the page um, and you can look at variants that have been encoded and so this is from the Beethoven's Werkstatt project this is a string quartet and it's um, handwritten, it's a sketch by Beethoven this online tool also enables you to view the sketch side by side with the modern transcription so you ask the librarian, well how was this made? She explains that the team encoding Beethoven's handwritten sketches are using XML and the Music Encoding Initiative, or MEI. So you're interested now in learning more about MEI, but you're a bit taken aback when the librarian tells the class that this project has begun in 2014 and it is a multi-institutional effort with a team of over six people um, and it's going to be funded through about 2030 in order to complete all of the encoding and the rendering of this edition. So there are a lot of um, resources that have to be um, provided in order for this project to really happen. Um, Also, the fact that you have to transcribe this music manually and then encode it because there is not yet an easy way to optically recognize each musical note and other symbols on the page. So there are quite a few challenges there. Yet, as a student, you're really still interested, so you schedule a time to talk with the librarian after class. So as you might have gathered from that little vignette, students who are interested in getting started with music and coding may first see an example of MEI in action, like a digital edition of that from the Beethoven and Werkstatt. And that can be really exciting, and they want to figure out, well, how can I do this? But it's also overwhelming when they learn that it requires a team of people, years of work, and often funding to develop. So in today's talk, I'm going to explore some of the barriers that students and scholars new to the Music Encoding Initiative often experience, and discuss a few ways in which I think we can start to lower these barriers through pedagogical approaches, creative assignments, and outcomes that are related to their disciplinary domain without necessarily having to jump in directly to teaching them XML, MEI, or even requiring programming skills. So if we think about why we might want to encode music, there are a variety of reasons, depending on the field you're in. For example, if you're in libraries or archives, you might think about it from a point of access and preservation. Um, So similar to text encoding, um, you know, music encoding allows you to capture the structural function of the document, um, it allows you to identify physical, visual appearances, and so forth. You may also want to make data open, right, in order for computational analysis and reuse. You might want to do machine learning so that you can train um, a software to recognize symbolic notation in order to do optical music recognition. You may want to have a database of all this open music data, so that people can search and retrieve that information and do analysis, perhaps, and so on. So there are a variety of use cases. <clears throat> and so in order to be able to, um, to encode the music, you need to think about data modeling. As I, as I mentioned already, things like structural function of the document, right? So each individual symbolic character, um, the notes, the lines, the different directives in a score are part of this process that you have to model. You have to take that data and you have to identify it in some way according to some set of rules. Um, In addition to the structural or the physical and visual appearances, you often have to insert your own interpretation or editorial um, considerations when you are editing and encoding a score. You might have to think about historical context of the work itself or even of a performance. And so this is where Music Encoding Initiative comes in. Now I'll just take a step back and say that there are various ways to encode music, Humdrum, Plain and Easy, Kern. We're talking about Music Encoding Initiative today um, as one option. So over approximately the last decade or so, the Music Encoding Initiative has become a recognized international community-driven effort that has developed and maintains the MEI schema, standards, and shared documentation. The potential of machine-readable music data that can be reused, rendered, shared, or analyzed using a computer is quite appealing. However, the reality is that various barriers exist for people who may be interested in beginning to encode music for the first time. So here's just an example of how you might look at a piece of music and then model it in MEI, just to give you a little bit of context. This is a piece by Nadia Boulanger. It's three pieces for cello and piano number two. Just an excerpt from the beginning, um, the cello piece here. And uh, the cello part. And the first measure is highlighted with a yellow circle. And on the right, you see XML. And so in the first measure, you will have the notes, um, you will identify the notes, the pitch names, the octave, the duration, the stem direction, um, and you encode this according to the MEI guidelines. And you also capture elements such as dynamic markings, uh, slurs, uh, performance directives, the instrumentation, and so forth. So you can see how on the right here in the XML, it's really a semantically rich way to capture those characteristics of the score. And of course, there are going to be different interpretations depending on your source material and your editorial preferences and methods. OK, so that was just to give you a little bit of kind of a background about music encoding initiative and kind of why we might want to use this to encode music. So let's turn to t- talking about potential barriers to music encol- encoding these are just a few here um, representing music notation and I'll go through these in further detail um, but just to give you a list availability of music data uh, learning markup and schemas developing programming knowledge and access to resources so if you think about representing music notation there are many different types of musical sources and notational systems So if you look at the objects in front of you here, left to right, we have a liturgical manuscript from the 14th century. In the center here we have a manuscript of an arrangement of a hymn, a 19th century hymn. And then you have the, um, on the bottom right here, you have a 17th century vocal piece. And so if you think about how do you start encoding this type of music? the very first barrier is even reading the music. And so if you're working with music students or music scholars who have that expertise and understand music notation, then you have, you know, you've overcome that first step. Um, but for people who may be familiar with text encoding initiative and want to also explore working on a project that's um, considering MEI, you now have to realize how do you encode the notation that you're looking at and what do these symbols mean? Um, So the domain knowledge is something that is really required. And then thinking about, again, the structural features. Um, So you have um, different notational systems from the 14th century through the 17th and the 19th century here represented. Um, Each one of these is going to be treated differently according to the MEI standards because you have different characteristics and features that you're trying to describe. Another barrier is the availability of music data. So um, I'm just gonna read this quote for you here from Laurent Poujon: Obtaining or accessing high quality data sets remains a serious hurdle, especially on a large scale, in a similar way to accessing sources a couple of decades ago. It is a major barrier that needs to be removed if digital musicology research is to be taken to the next level. Where do you get the music data? if you have a transcription, then you can enter that into a program like Sibelius or Finale mu- music notation software. If you have a manuscript, you have to hand transcribe that content even to be able to start to think about encoding or doing any other kind of edition work with it. Um, next, you think about you know, which composers and works um, might be already available as music data in a repository somewhere, um, whose works are not available Thinking about copyright, so that's another barrier around availability of music data. Um, We have quite a bit of early music data that has been made available through various projects, um, like the Scan project from Stanford, and there's the Contus um, database of liturgical manuscripts that has been encoding music, and a lot of that music has been made available because early music scholars have been transcribing and creating concordances for decades. Um, when you think about 19th century or moving into the 20th century when music is now copyrighted, you can't often take that data and convert it and extract it and then encode it because of the copyright. And so then you get into licensing issues. So there are multiple barriers there as well. And one of the bigger areas that presents a challenge is the technical and the technological for many people. Unless you have a background in computer science or you are maybe self-taught or self-learning how to do programming. Looking at all of these different things that you need to even think about and to get started with encoding can be overwhelming. Um, So being able to familiarize yourself with XML um, in order to mark up the musical documents. Thinking about metadata standards. I mean, there are so many different metadata standards, of course, um, but as a student or a faculty member who maybe doesn't think about metadata the way librarians or archivists do, that can be really challenging, just learning, um, learning about how to apply those standards and what do they mean. Um, the MEI guidelines and schema, those are very handy and they're well written. These, you know, the, Those are the rules that tell you how to encode the content, but often those are also pretty abstract, and so I think that there needs to be a little bit more effort around creating Um, excerpts and examples in order to be more illustrative of how to actually get into the encoding process. And of course, becoming familiar, or becoming an even expert in using software applications, um, techniques and tools for analysis. So if you are moving beyond encoding and now you want to actually do some kind of computational analysis where you're comparing pitch frequencies or hierarchies, um, you have to then start to familiarize yourself potentially with Python or some other programming language in order to run these analyses. And of course, access to resources. Many of these projects require digitization, data extraction, or actual creation of the data, as well as programming and development work. You need to have support and funding to be able to run these projects. So creating large amounts of data even requires a concerted effort and various levels of support. Okay, so despite all of those barriers, right, what can we do? What can we do to start to lower them? We can challenge students to think differently. And as Brandon T. Locke wrote here, um, I'm gonna read the quote, although computational analysis is often seen as a means to a scholarly end, it holds great value in its ability to challenge students to think differently about a resource, to break down the way we convey information and think about ways to work through those abstractions. The disciplinary benefit is not necessarily the development of computational research skills, but instead in teaching students about research methodologies and new ways about thinking, new ways of thinking about sources. So really, Giving them what they might already know and extending it. If you are teaching a music research class um, and you are learning about um, sketches, for example, or your scholarly editions, taking them from where they already are and starting to talk about how you might capture information about a work, a musical work, if you were trying to encode it without even having the language around XML. Just identifying things on a page, for example thinking critically about the historical context behind the work and what kind of information you might want to encode if you were to create a scholarly edition of your own. So I just wanted to to share this because I think that sometimes um, as a librarian, I don't often have a chance to teach semester-long courses. So I don't have a graduate class that I teach over the course of a a seminar over the course of a semester, I often go in to these individual classes. So I have maybe a one-shot workshop, an individual class visit, um, a long longer term project, or I might be embedded into a class and so I, I go in once a month or twice a month and help with different research needs. So there are different modes of teaching um, but I think that rather than you know thinking about these as obstacles, I like to think about how do i approach this from um, a way of developing assignments and identifying specific outcomes and realistic outcomes that we can take away from each of these sessions and so if i'm only going in for one two-hour class i don't have time to teach them everything about music and coding but we might be able to talk about you know how do you create a metadata header so thinking about you know, the metadata that you might identify on a score, like a title page, which we'll talk about in a little bit, um, and how do you start to put that in a way that then could be made machine-readable? So presenting them with these smaller-scale kind of examples in order to get them to understand how this could potentially work without trying to teach them everything at once. And I think that these entry points, right, must be also kind of... um, created around the student's interest and desire or curiosity to learn. So some of the things that I use when I'm developing assignments and, and outcomes um, are the ACRL framework for information literacy and pedagogy, and also thinking about critical pedagogy, digital or not. Um, so I just wanted to, to put that out there for you. Um, so you can think about, you know, if, I am, if I'm creating an assignment where we are Um, identifying sources that might have been used um, in a work for example incorporated into a piece we might want to talk about who are um, the composers that are being represented in a piece Um, where did you find that information Um, can you find more information in encyclopedia like Grove for example or written in scholarship by other scholars um, in literature So there are different ways to tie in some of these frameworks into music encoding pedagogy as well. And of course, with critical pedagogy, thinking about some of these questions, I think, is really important. And I'll talk about this in a little bit, um, in a few minutes. (coughs) So um, Brandon Walsh, he's at University of Virginia in the Scholars Lab. Um, I really liked what he had to say about thinking about critical pedagogy. And he writes that digital humanities pedagogy is thinking deeply and critically about the teaching itself and the interpersonal, societal, and institutional changes it purports to make. It's not just about the classroom. That is to say, we, and he means he he and his colleagues at UVA in the scholars lab, certainly teach DH methods, tools, and thinking, but we're more more directly trying to think about how and why we do this work and what larger implications it might have. And so I think that this observation is equally important uh, when teaching music encoding. There have been decades worth of work um, that has gone into developing music encoding projects. And again, not all are in MEI, um, as well as developing resources that enable analysis, manipulation, and comparison of musical patterns and repertoires. Um, As with um, digitized manuscripts, however, many of these tools have focused primarily on early music, and they have left out a big chunk of repertoire. Um, So if you're focusing on Western Western Europe, for example, you're excluding works by women, you're excluding works um, by people of color and non-Western composers. So while these larger scale encoding projects and tools have made it possible for music scholars to closely analyze and identify interesting features in early music, we should be asking ourselves whose voices or work is being excluded and why. I think that that's where critical pedagogy can really help us ask those questions. Um, you know, working with faculty and librarians to, when presenting music encoding as a concept, identifying works by composers that may not be in the canon to teach how to encode certain types of examples is really key. However, this is a big ask, right? It's a big ask for many scholars and librarians, largely due to the lack of music data um, that is available for marginalized composers and non-canonical works. I would also argue that engaging in conversations with students and scholars about the affordances of MEI and creating small scale encoding for use in workshops, seminars, or other instructional settings is equally as valuable as developing large scale music encoding projects um, or repositories of music data that replicate a singular composer creator model. So modeling critical pedagogy while teaching whether it's music research or encoding, is really necessary. So let's talk about some of these approaches to music encoding pedagogy. So encoding is something that music scholars do. Most music scholars don't think about that, right? They don't don't do music encoding. Ryan Cordell has a great quote when he was writing about how not to teach digital humanities. And this is a few years old now, but I think it's still pretty relevant. Um, He says, and I would argue more and more that the way we should integrate DH into the undergraduate curriculum is as a naturalized part of what literary scholars or historians or other humanists do. Teach distant reading alongside close reading. And don't worry about proving how revolutionary the former is. Such an approach also lowers the barrier for doing DH in the undergraduate classroom. You don't have to be a DH expert to create, or better yet steal, a few exciting DH assignments. I think that, oops, sorry. I think that within the music domain, it makes sense to meet students where they are. So using relevant examples or introducing assignments that require them to look at music that maybe they have learned about in a Western music history class or music that they're unfamiliar with, and having them think critically about the type of information or the metadata that they might need to identify as they analyze the piece of music or text is really key. Scaffolding assignments or lesson plans to bring them from a place of, their, of comfort where they are already able to identify bibliographic details or analyze a music score to then creating a small-scale encoding example or a metadata header, can become a naturalized part of what music scholars do. So one approach that I have used when teaching text encoding initiative um, and have started to apply for music encoding is the document analysis, um, just with paper and pencil. um, credit for this chart and the larger chart that follows this is um, for Michelle Dalmau, she's at Indiana University and she and I co-taught several TEI sessions at the recent ARL Digital Scholarship Institute and we use this with our students. Um, So the point of using a document analysis is to create entry points into music encoding that can make newcomers feel that they are welcome to participate and have something to contribute because it's starting at a place where they already are familiar. And this is the larger chart that just breaks out each of these um, specific sections. So thinking about your document universe. So for example, if you have a score that you are going to encode or would like to encode, that score may have earlier additions that are not exactly the same as the piece you have in front of you. So thinking about how many of these documents Are you going to represent? Uh, Maybe just one, but you might want to represent more. You may want to show variance in different editions, for example. Looking at the sample document to recognize what is typical about it, what is atypical, and how do you account for that when you are modeling the data. Um, Thinking about the structure of your um, content, looking at um, how is the content perhaps formatted Um, What parts of the document will you be encoding? Are you leaving anything out? Um, And so on. So there there are some um, questions to guide you or prompts along the way. And with the document analysis, um, something that I've been using is presenting different types of use cases. And these are a bit broad, but you can make them obviously more specific depending on the assignment and your audience. So if you're thinking about doing a class or a workshop with primarily librarians and archivists, you may want to talk about why you might encode music in order to capture metadata or to preserve the document um, for preservation purposes. And so you would have various key features and elements that you can start to then identify in the score that would be important for you to preserve. And those may be different from what you would talk about if you're going to do a scholarly edition, and so on. So here is a sample research and analysis assignment. And this is something that you could use with a bibliography or research methods seminar class. Um, so if you have a graduate student seminar that is looking at aspects of historical musicology, they have a background in music theory and analysis already, because that was part of their undergraduate cu- undergraduate cu- curriculum. And of course, in their um, graduate um, classes, they also take further advanced theory. Um, they have already become familiar with bibliography. And so this is a great way to bring in some small aspects of music encoding concepts into what they already know. Um, so I would have them, in this case for example, identify an early edition of a piano composition, and we're gonna look at that ourselves in a few minutes, um, published in the 19th century that incorporates a popular operatic theme. This was, actu- this was pretty, a pretty common occurrence. Um, there are many different operas that were, um, themes were incorporated into piano pieces and vocal pieces um, for people to play at home. Um, And then I would have them, you know, print out a copy so that they could actually use pencil or or a pen and identify and mark up their document. And this is without requiring them to have any understanding of XML um, elements or attributes or language. Um, So I would start by having them examine the title page and then the subsequent pages of the piano composition and start to circle or bracket details that provide um, information about the work, such as, You know, where is the title? Where is the composer's name? Um, Is there a publisher identified, an edition? Um, What kind of non-textual details might be important? Perhaps there's an illustration on the title page. Um, How would you describe that? Identifying physical and structural elements. So things like page numbers and sections, measures, how many bars are there, and so forth. Um, And again, this is Something that they could do easily without any knowledge of XML or, mu- or music encoding initiative standards. <clears throat> and tying this back to thinking about outcomes um, with ACRL framework, for example, if we're thinking about um, attribution or intellectual responsibility, this is an opportunity for them to identify, um, you know when they're doing their um, metadata for title composer and so forth, those pieces of attribution for the intellectual work. Um, but also it might lead them to ask questions about the composition and do some additional research. And so the second part of this assignment would be to have them answer some of these questions that would require greater research, um, such as, you know, what is the title of the opera that this work is based on? And so you would have to go to Row dictionary, for example, or um, Wikipedia, or wherever you have, um, wherever you might find additional information about that opera, um, identify style and genre of the piano composition, for example, and so forth. Um, and then getting into things like provenance and thinking about the source description. You know, actually, where is this source housed? Do you know if there's the library or archive? Um, that has this early edition, what is it, right? And then of course creating this bibliography so you have all this information. Um, It seems like a pretty straightforward exercise or assignment that these graduate students can definitely handle. Um, But yet you're already starting to think about and identify some of these concepts in MEI or music encoding um, that they otherwise would not have maybe kind of correlated. All right, so let's take a few minutes and actually look at the score that I have in front of you. I think everyone should have a copy. So you can pretend that you are a student in a class like this, and whether or not you have any XML background, um, you do not have to identify exact element names or attributes. Um, Just think about what do you see on the page? And so if you were to describe the main elements in order to cite this work or provide some additional context, which of these elements would you start to identify? So let's take maybe like a minute or two to just start to kind of circle some of these elements and put some names or fields um, next to them and then can talk a little bit more about um, what we might do and what you did. You can feel free to go into the second page as well, into the music, if you'd like, and start to kind of pick out some specific elements that you think you would want to capture. Um, I'm not sure how well you can see the score; the, the black and white copy might be a little difficult to read. Okay. All right, so let's let's just talk about it together. Um, if you take a look at the title page, what is one thing that might be a barrier to you? Right off the bat, yes? The
1: language
0: determinant.
2: Exactly, right? So this is in French. So if you don't read French, it could be a little bit challenging. Um, can you still? out some of the metadata that describes the work without the language or do we kind of be able to guess what you're looking at? Kind of, yeah. Yep. So okay that's that's definitely a barrier. Um, also, the yes font also. the font <laughs> exactly and they love to do all you know all these different combinations right on these title pages. Um, so you have several different types of fonts on here, and styles. Um, yeah, any other barriers that you no. ran into? Yeah. I guess just limited music vocabulary.
1: Like, mm-hmm. Some of the words are cognates. So I think that I know
0: what they mean, but they don't resonate with me. Yeah, exactly.
2: So those are, those are really great observations, and I think that Again, you know, thinking about if this is a music research class, then there is some expectation that most of the students will have a little bit more familiarity with some of the terminology or even language, but not necessarily, right? And so that's a great place to have a conversation about, well, where would you go, what resources can you access to help you figure out what does caprice mean, right? What does that word you know, um, mean in this context? Um, or you know, poorly pianoforte, probably can figure that out a little bit. Um, but some of this other terminology or just the language itself, you know, you might have to go and pick up a French dictionary, for example, and translate some of these words in order to better understand it. Um, in terms of kind of historical context, there's a lot, of go- there's a lot going on in this piece um, that isn't necessarily... Visible to people who are not familiar with the history and the composers. And so, Maria Shimanovska, where here it says MME, Madame or Mademoiselle Shimanovska, her full name is not on the title page. So, that's something where you'd have to figure out okay, well, who is the, where's the, you know, where's the rest of this information? You might have to go to the library record or the catalog record to look at their metadata to see who the composer is of this piece. she composed this piano work based on an opera by uh, Nicolo Issoir, and it's under the title Caprice. It says Sur la Romance de Joconde. And so that is the, t- the piece from the opera. So it's a theme that she has taken and incorporated into the musical work. So a lot of this historical context is really not clear until you start to do a little bit of research, right? Um, the connection with Monsieur Jean Field she dedicated this piece to him. He was an Irish pianist composer. And she actually studied with him a little bit, and he was a mentor of hers. Um, and there's all these other kind of references that you might not understand at first until you start to dig deeper. And so what this shows you is that, you know, we're just, we were talking about music encoding concepts and thinking about the metadata that you might want to capture, like title, composer, dedicatee, etc. But then it really brings you back to thinking about scholarship and research. And, you know, how would you as a student find information that can then tell you more about this piece that you could include in your encoding if you were going to encode it? Um, Let's see here. I had the synopsis of the opera, um, but this isn't as relevant, so I'm going to actually skip past it um, to show you the record. So this is the library or the catalog record for this work. And this is at the Bibliothek. Um, It's the National Library in Warsaw, in Poland. And the catalog record gives you a lot of the metadata that you would need if you were to encode this. And so this is a step in the process where a student would have to go and find this information in order to be able to answer some of these questions. Okay, so I have about 15 minutes left, so I'm going to move along. Um, This is the... The first page of the music in the in the score here. Um, so again, I saw some of you moving along to that to the next page of the musical score um, and capturing some of the elements. So what were some things that you were identifying just kind of quickly as you were looking at the score?
1: Key.
2: Key. Yep. Key signature, mm-hmm. right? So you have those sharp. They look like hashtags to people who may not be musicians. They're. Um, at the top left there, you have a key signature.
1: Section title.
2: Yep. Yes, you have the beginning of the caprice. Um, the title right there. You have each individual measure is a unit. And then you have all of the components within the measure itself. Uh, you have ornamentation. So things like um, have the trill here that continues along, or you have dynamic markings, um, or excuse me, staccato markings, dynamics underneath, and so forth. So again, a lot of this it does require musical language or terminology. Um, but these are just the elements that you would start to capture. And you know, then, of course, you have to think about, well, how do you get all of that data out? That's a whole other process. <laughs> um, OK, so let's see here. So we did this kind of briefly already. I'm just going to move into ideas for assignments. Um, so as I've mentioned already, things like creating an MEI metadata header, right? And so thinking with your graduate students or even undergraduate students uh, some of those um, metadata details that we identify, the title, composer, et cetera, um, how much of that information do you need for what we call an MEI metadata header? Um, you know, where else will you go to find that information? You might create an assignment where you ask them to reverse engineer a music encoding project. Um, So Miriam Posner, several years ago, um, had a blog post called How Did They Make That, where she took these these different projects, like an Omeka project, and basically said, okay, here's how they built this from the ground up um, by looking at the various components. And that's a really great way to have the students think about, you know, what source material is being used, who's working on the project in order to actually build this thing. Um, Where did they get the data? Did they have to create it? Did they get it from a repository? What technology did they use? And so forth. Um, So there are a lot of different assignments that I think can get people into music encoding without necessarily having them start by doing the XML um, or really understanding the guidelines um, uh, as a whole yet. Things like tools that allow you to explore music encoding or MEI. Um, so Verovio Editor, this is still being developed by Laurent Poujan. Um, what this shows you is if you go to the link there, this is an example score that they have on the website. You have the MEI that's rendered live in the browser, and then you can edit the XML below. And so if you change the pitch name B to F, it'll automatically change it in the browser here. So you get to see what you're doing. This is actually a really powerful tool. This is something that um, also in the text encoding community, before we had uh, projects like Tapas, um, or we had the TI by example, for example, we couldn't do this kind of simulation, right? We couldn't render the XML immediately without having an enormous infrastructure. Um, So having tools like this, is useful because it shows, especially beginners, how this works when you make changes and what it affects. Self-guided tutorials are also another way to bring people into the music encoding. Um, I listed out here uh, the DLF Teach Toolkit, um, where Raphael and I actually, we created an intro to music encoding using open source tools and trying to break it down step by step so that people can really understand how to um, just do basic things like extract the music data, create an MEI file, create an MEI uh, header. But there are other um, lesson plans out there and programs like the Programming Historian, TEI by example, I already mentioned, that aren't necessarily teaching music encoding, but they're teaching these concepts that are going to be applicable, so XML um, there are different lessons that do talk about XML and TEI. I mean, is the foundation from which we have MEI. Um, and so, there is, there is definitely applicability there, and I think that those are useful places to also start.
0: Let's see.
2: So, I'll end by saying that um, I think that MEI should be seen as just another part of the larger ecosystem of methods and approaches that we use, um, whether we're practicing digital humanities or you know, musicology or literary scholarship. Approaching MEI through the lens of pedagogy can lower the barriers to entry for students, but also make it less intimidating for instructors who may be faculty or librarians who are teaching these concepts for the first time. Um, by starting with something they know and already understand. In addition, I think that creating more opportunities for people to engage with and um, engage with music encoding through conversation. This can be Twitter chats, for example, or local regional workshops, um, as well as thinking about how to develop some of these specific use case assignments and making our work more visible in the larger community of digital humanities and libraries is key. So exploring and teaching music encoding through approaches such as critical pedagogy in particular also encourages questions around authority and power structures. For instance, why was the MEI created? And for whom? Why would you use the MEI over other music encoding standards? Whose music is being encoded? And who has access to this data? Um, What type of infrastructure is necessary? And so on. Encouraging and engaging these conversations about the affordances of MEI is equally valuable, as is the act of creating large music data sets or full-on MEI projects. So the end goal may not be a full-scale music encoding project, but rather use cases or studies that are more intentional in engaging to the students, faculty, and are related to their own personal learning goals. Thank you. I have several pages of bibliography, so if you're interested in engaging further with the sources, the literature, you can take a look, as well as some of these tutorials, and I'm happy to talk and discuss with you um, and hear what what you all want to learn more about or what your observations are. So thank you. So we have
1: a few minutes for questions or comments. So kind of integrating with, uh, something you mentioned a little bit when it comes to copyright, but also mm-hmm. tying in actually engaging with students. Uh, are there any methods or ways that you have found that are more engaging to talk about copyright? With, you know, it's not necessarily yeah. the most uh, engaging to everyone, uh-huh. depending on where your interests lies. So are there any examples of activities you've done or things that you've kind of been able to get over that barrier to make sure that they engage with that as well as part of their process.
2: Yeah, um, actually, recently I I was I did a guest lecture for a class where we talked about creating playlists and concept albums, and one of our um, kind of areas of conversation was around copyright, and so we talked about it from the perspective of sampling music, right, and so. Often you'll hear in popular media, newspapers, there might be a court case um, because an artist sampled music from another artist and they didn't get their permission. And now they're going to court and they're being sued. This happened recently with Drake. Um, There was a court case where Drake actually won the case. Um, He sampled a couple minutes of a spoken word um, intro to a song. Um, I'm blanking on the other guy's name right now. Uh, but he sampled the, the, the music in a song, in a, in a piece that he co-wrote with Jay-Z, and the court found that um, they used basically what they're saying. It was fair use because it was transformational, or transformative, excuse me, and therefore they did not feel like they were um, you know, infringing upon the other artist's copyright. So I think that having conversations through real-life cases like this where you can show the students, here are artists that you're familiar with, you know their music, um, and you've listened to the, this music. You know What do you think? Do you think that this is a transformative use case? Um, yes or no? And you know, I had a student who was like, I don't think it's a transformative use case. He stole this guy's you know, text, like spoken word, exact word for word. But it's the message that was being crafted in the new song that the court viewed as being transformative. Um, and therefore, he won the case. So I think that those are those are ways that you could have those conversations, because um, otherwise, it's a lot of legal language and it can be fairly dry. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyone else? Or did you? Did I answer your question? Yes. Okay.
0: <laughs> yes. Is there any? effort being put into getting current composers and current composers when they generate their work yeah. to, in some level, put it into MEI, even if it's just the the upfront documentation, mm-hmm. it's like, do you, do you go talk to composers? So, because it seems like taking, it's always catch up if you're saying, which ones should we put in? If you could right. have new ones just being in, from here forward it would be a lot simpler I would think do you ever go to yeah. like composers and composition classes and things and say okay when you present your piece you can yeah. do this metadata and then stick in a recording you know link to a recording you don't have to hand write every note even or you can this is a place where you can document background information that what you're trying to convey or what the you know, what, what it was based on or what things to look at if you're ever going to go back and analyze it? Do you ever
2: yeah. reach to those? I've had some of those goals? conversations. And actually, so um, a year ago or so, I um, started working on a project called Rebalancing the Canon and was working with some students where we were taking uh, pieces primarily from, um, you know, public domain works and converting them, extracting the data and encoding them. And I put out a call a public call saying, you know, are there people out there who would like to help us uh, identify other works and composers who we might want to encode their music. Actually a composer responded to me and said, oh, I can send you some of my work. And so I started having a conversation with them about, well, you know, is this, like, is your work copyrighted and and who has the rights and so forth? Because that can get pretty complicated if they're not self-publishing. So I have started having some of those conversations like that and also with faculty and students. Uh, so we have a, a project where um, we have African music, drumming music, that uh, has been uh, transcribed into a music notation software. And so we can easily produce music XML. And if we need to convert to MEI, we can do that as well. Um, and so trying—you know—it's having those conversations requires explaining kind of what the purpose is of that. And so talking to them about access and preservation, for example, talking to them about, you know, you can you make your data available for other people to study it and analyze it for example if they have access to tools or or you know know how to program Um, so yes (laughs) i haven't been successful in terms of yet getting you know a number of people to give me their um you know compositions or contemporary compositions and encode them but i think that this is just kind of part of the process is and having,
0: having them do it as part of their production of their piece
2: to begin with. Right, because they can export as music XML. And if they export as music XML, then you have data. Um, I think that one of the concerns I've heard is that they fear that if they are self published, um, for example, and if they're selling their works and having people purchase them and print on demand. What prohibits somebody from taking their music XML and just printing out their own score?
0: But you were talking about even just putting in cover page kind of information. They could right. wrap that around a recording or even not a recording, and yeah. you suddenly get an archive of things that people have been composing with good information about what they were thinking and what they were doing and when it was performed and how long it was and who were their performers. And you sort of build the library that way a little bit. You would think that that would be. With it's more than notes. You right. don't have to have any notes. It's yeah. Metadata about the
2: performance history or the recordings. Mm-hmm. No, that's
0: great. That's a great
2: project idea.
0: And yeah. that would be something that, because I think you're missing something in general, not you, with the ethnomusicologists, because yes. a lot of that stuff is not really so easily. The notes, it's not really about the notes. Right. So if you could reach out to them with, what you want to capture about this may be something different, but there's places to stick it in there so you can talk about the ceremony it was used in or the yeah. you know, the circumstances around collecting it. or the. And you could also link to recordings and things, but you don't have to. It, it's bigger than notes. Yeah, it definitely. doesn't and have to have any notes
2: in it. And that, I mean, we do that already with metadata. Mm-hmm. And so in our repository, we have a collection of various African drumming um, recordings from this one particular professor and, and his and the performers he works with, and all of that is marked up in XML. Um, and so it's but it's you know it's it's just metadata. it's not necessarily um, it's not in, in music XML or MEI XML, but it is XML. And so that is already there. Um, and I think that other libraries are doing that kind of work if they have, they're, if they're capturing whether it's ethnomusicological field recordings or um you know audio it would visual seem to try to outreach to get the ethnomusicologists
0: on board. because I don't think they ever think I don't think they think about that in general. That doesn't seem to be Yeah. You know.
2: Those are great questions. I think that definitely we can we can talk more and I'm sure Steve and other people would be happy to have conversations. We to wrap up? We, we should wrap up. Okay. We have a <laughs> workshop going on
1: here this afternoon for the AdHume um, initiative on immersive media and play, um, and you're all welcome to stay for that if you'd like. Um, but let's thank Anna one more time.